Hey, welcome to Manalyzing. This is where men talk about the kind of stuff that men don't talk about. Put your hard hat on, get ready for a ride. Here we go. Dennis Harris. Now, you and I go way back, of course. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we met a couple of days ago. Yeah. <laughs> and I did a home inspection for you. Um, I don't do home inspections very often, but for, for a, a lady like Rochelle, you do, you do whatever she asks. She's a pretty awesome lady. She is. So I've known you for a grand total of maybe a couple of hours and a few days. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> the two listeners that listen to, to this, um, let's, let's have them get to know you. Okay. Uh, you're an ex-cop. Where were you an ex-cop and what did a day look like for you? I was uh, with the Utah County Sheriff's Office uh -huh. for, uh, I started in 1979, and so I stayed there uh, for 41 and a half years. That's uh, a few. It is a few. Actually, it was a little, let's see, it was a little bit less than that. Uh, it was about 40 years, and then I had uh, Provo Police Department ask me if I was interested in coming over with them afterwards, and I did for about a year and a half, and and then one day I woke up and said, you know what, I've, I've been in this profession for too long. I got to do something else and, and get out of it. Plus, I was starting to have a few health problems prior to that also. What's the difference between county copping and city copping? Well, uh, even to this day, I'd still rather be a deputy sheriff. The reason being is uh, in a city... You know, you, you only have so many miles that you can patrol in or operate in. Uh -huh. And when you're working with a county, you got you got the entire county, which in, which actually includes if you're going through any cities, you can do enforcement in there also. So uh, so basically, I was able to do a lot of patrolling up in the mountains, uh, you know, go up along the Alpine Loop, up American Fort Canyon, up to Sundance. Uh, had chance of meeting Robert Redford, you know, quite a few people. It was, it was just nice. It felt like I was able to get out and do a few things. Right. Yeah. Where if you're city copying, especially in uh, maybe Midvale, Salt Lake City, whatever, yeah. it's all concrete jungle. It is. It absolutely is. And, uh, you know, there's just something about getting up in the mountains, you know, up in the forest, uh, getting out into the desert. Um, uh, the only problem with that is, you know, you had to be careful. You had to be very mindful that, you know, being out in the middle of anywhere, uh, you're probably going to be waiting a long time for backup. Uh, obviously today, mm -hmm. uh, with the cities, uh, like they've grown, you know, you'd probably have access to backup a little bit quicker, but back then I was looking at about 25 minutes plus. Right. So when I started manalyzing, I had, I've got demons working me all the time, but the demons that were working me at the time was like, you know, A, men don't like to talk about their stuff. B, you're asking them to talk about their stuff to a million other people who they've never met. C, why would they do that? D, your podcast is not going to go anywhere because nobody is going to be willing to talk to you. Mm -hmm. Um, that's one of the lines they were giving me. So, uh, I, I gave you fair warning about what manalyzing is and yeah. the vulnerability we're, we're asking from you. Why, why, why are you sitting in that chair today? Well, I'm probably doing it more, uh, for the sake of my daughter. 
uh-huh. to be honest with you. She was uh, 15 years old uh, while I was working for the sheriff's office, and uh, she got a hold of my duty gun, and uh, she died by suicide. And so I've, uh, I've struggled with that a lot. And uh, one thing that I learned very early on after her passing was that the more that I spoke about it, and the more I analyzed it, uh, the, probably the faster I'd, I would heal internally. And, uh, and I passed that on to my family also. You passed that on. How did you pass that on? Well, I tried to encourage my family to talk about it. If you really give it some thought, years ago, if there was a suicide in your family, it was something that people would shut down. They would shut down. They would hide. They didn't want to discuss it. But there was an inherent problem with that. Uh, and that is basically you're building a lot of pressure with inside yourself. And you uh, sometimes a human being can only take so much pressure before they a- absolutely start experiencing psychological, physical problems. And uh, I learned a very val- valuable lesson from a psychologist. After spending about $75,000 on my kids through therapy, uh-huh. He told me, he said, the best thing, Dennis, that you could ever do is talk about this. You will heal faster than anything else. And so I made that a point through my career to go ahead and talk about this. My initial thoughts were I wanted to go back, hide, and not really talk to anybody. Uh I wanted to withdraw. Um... And I guess to a point for a short time, I kind of did. Um, How'd that work out for you? It, it, it wasn't working out at all. Um, I knew that I had to do something different. What, what were the physical results that indicated that it wasn't working out for you? How did you know it wasn't working out? Well, first of all, I took off two weeks after my daughter passed away. Uh-huh. And uh, I just pretty much stayed quiet around the office, um, out on patrol. I just kind of did my thing and didn't really say a whole lot. I I felt like there were others that wanted to talk to me. I didn't want to talk about it. And uh, I was trying to just slowly figure out a way to emerge or heal from what I was feeling inside, because I was bawling everything up. Um, mentally, physically, uh, you name it. And I, I, I felt like there had to be something more. And that's when I decided I had to do something really different. Because when my daughter, oldest daughter, passed away, my next daughter, next oldest daughter, she hit the ground at about Mach 2. And she was one of those girls I, I never had a problem with her. Not, not one problem. She was probably, if you can talk about a per, having a perfect child in your home, she was probably pretty close to that. This is your second daughter. This is my second daughter. And so she hit the ground really hard. <clears throat> she started doing a lot of things that I knew was going to be very bad for her very quickly uh-huh. if I didn't do something about it. Um, my wife then, she uh, she was struggling with it also. And I probably should start at the very beginning on what happened. 
but at this point, I'm thinking we need some help. And that's when I turned to that's, contacting. A, that's a, when you started spending $75,000. Yes. So a couple things come to mind. Um, you know, your experience has to feel uniquely yours. And you have to have felt like only you are dealing with this. But I've interviewed guys um, who don't have the same story. But Robert Snow, good man, lives, uh, lives down... Uh, near where we did the inspection at. He uh, sat where you are and he cried about his daughter, how she was um, suicidal, and how he sat on the bench just inside the garage door and just cried. He didn't have any idea what to do. Uh, and he couldn't go to his wife because he didn't, he knew that her plate was full too. And he couldn't go to any other dude because who are you going to go to? So he just kept it inside. And what you just described is what uh, I've come to feel like us men are trash compactors. Mm. We, we compact and we compact and we just shove it down and shove more down. And then comes a day when you can't shove it down anymore because you're full and then you explode and go nuclear and innocent people become victims. If there's somebody listening to us who's like, oh, my daughter or my son committed suicide, or they're suicidal. Um, there's other guys. There's, there's other people who you can talk to. Well, if, I'd like to share with you a little bit of story regarding my daughter's death. Please. You know, I'm going to walk down memory lane a little bit. And um, this was in 1998. And uh, I, uh, I was working in narcotics. Uh -huh. And uh, out of my 40 years, I spent 20 years uh, working in the narcotics arena. And, uh, and so I, I was gone a lot I, uh, during the day, night, morning. I would a lot of times get home maybe 2, 3 in the morning. I was out back out the door, 11 o'clock, 10 o'clock, depending. And, uh, and so I would come in real late. But my, my thing was every time that I came in, I made sure that I would go in to each one of the kids' rooms, open up the door, you know, give them a kiss on the, on the cheek, on the forehead. Um, if it wasn't too late, sometimes I'd wake them up, even though it'd still be a little bit late. Uh -huh. And uh, I uh, would talk with them. I, I just, I felt like I had a bond with my kids. I really do. Right. But there was a time when my uh, youngest, or excuse me, my oldest daughter then, she was having some problems. And being in the teens, you know, you got your... Uh, if they're a teenager, they have problems. They're all over the map. Uh -huh. And uh, as well as she was, she was having anxiety. She was having depression. She had a boyfriend that basically at that point she said dumped her. And so she was, she was struggling with that. And so... I was trying to keep an eye on her uh, the best I could, and my wife then at that time was also. And uh, so uh, fast-forwarding, uh, one morning I came home uh, again early in the morning, and uh, I opened up the closet door. Generally, I'll, I'll go lock my, my gun up in a safe. Um, I didn't want to make any racket. Opened up the closet door, got on my 
tippy toes, so to speak, uh-huh. you know, lifted my gun up into the very top of the closet, put it in the very back, closed the door, went to sleep. And I got up that morning and I thought, well, I need to get out and do some rototilling. And so I got on the tractor and started doing a little bit of rototilling that morning. And uh, all of a sudden her boyfriend uh, ran around the corner and said, hey, Dennis, uh, Talia just called me and said she couldn't breathe. And I, I sat there and I go, wait a second, what are you talking about? She's up sleeping. Uh, she didn't go to school that morning because um, she was just having some rough times. And and uh, and so I sat there and thought about it for a fraction of a second and then ran upstairs and uh, looked in her room and she wasn't there. And so I was looking at, to try and find her. And then I went in my bedroom and she was on the floor. And because of the uh, pallor of her face, the color of her face, uh, her positioning, uh, and numerous things, <coughs> excuse me, it led me to believe. I, I knew at that point that she had passed away and there was nothing that I was going to be able to do to bring her back. I, uh, being a being a detective also, I'm trying to figure out, you know, the manner of her death. And uh, I pulled up her shirt because I couldn't see any blood anywhere. Pulled her shirt up and about the center of her chest was just a little red dot. And I took my little finger and just kind of poked it. And my finger went in. And at that point, I knew she had shot herself. In the heart. Yeah, per, right right next to her heart. And uh, I uh, I had a, it was, uh, you know, I, I called 911. I uh, walked outside uh, into the garage area and driveway. And I just basically fell down. And uh, a lot of that is just really black to me. I have to be honest with you. It's just, uh, next thing I remember is I remember the police, sheriffs, the local police, the sheriff's office, I think Orem Police Department, Provo Police Department, sheriff's office, the fire department. There were so many police vehicles and uh, firefighters on both sides of the street for quite a ways on both sides. And I called my uh, wife then at that time on the phone and I said to her, I said, uh, Tamara, you need to come home. And she goes, well, what's going on? And she she was out uh, exercising with another uh, female deputy sheriff. They were out uh, walking and running, I believe. And and I says, well, just come home. I says, I, I can't really say right now. I need to talk to you face to face. And and after a moment on the phone, she started crying. She she sensed what was wrong and she knew what was wrong. And she came home and uh, it was a rough time. And then I asked the police to pick up each one of my kids, uh, two, two other of my children, my youngest, my youngest one was still fairly young at home, and they brought each one of my kids home, and uh, I, I talked to them individually, and uh, told them basically what had happened. And uh, I, what did that first night feel like for you? You know, the cop cars are gone, the fire engines are gone, your kids are at home. What did it feel like? 
it was, uh, um, I don't know if this makes sense or not. It was like someone placed a nuclear bomb right in the center of my family and blew my family up. I don't know a better way to, to describe it. It's like my wife was doing what she could do to survive. Each one of my kids were doing what they could to survive. And it's like we weren't together. And uh, we were in survival mode. Right. Totally. A handful of individuals who are extremely isolated islands unto themselves trying to survive. Trying to survive. And at the same time, everybody's holding it inside. And we're basically crying day and night. Uh -huh. Can't sleep. Um, finally figure uh, my oldest daughter, short time later, you know, like I said, she hit the ground at Mach 2. And I knew we had to do something right then. So we worked together. And we got a hold of a lifeline up in, uh, I think it was up in center, it was a Centerville. And uh, we took my daughter up there and put her into a program. What do you mean she hit the ground at Mach 2? She uh, she totally, uh, it was a disassociation from the family. Uh -huh. um, I believe she started drinking. She started doing a lot, a lot of things that we knew that if we didn't get a hold of it right then, we were going to be looking at another situation where we're going to have another daughter that's going to pass away. And as a father, I thought there is no way I am going to let anything happen to the rest of my kids. I shouldn't say as a father, as a mother and father, we were committed on making sure that nothing was going to happen to our kids. Right. And so we knew that we weren't in a, a position to go ahead and do something, but I knew that there was something out there. So we did a lot of checking and we found a program that we put her into. And to this day, I believe that it gave her the tools to help her out immensely. So you went from uh, being a handful of islands inside the same house under the same roof. You got her professional help. How about the family itself? Did you pull together in any way? How did you, did you improve things with each other in any way? Uh, let me take it just a step further. I thought that maybe we had our, our daughter in safe hands, which, uh -huh. which we did. And about a year later, well, well, first of all, let me back up. I thought my son was fine. Uh -huh. I thought, no problems. He's going to be okay. But about a year later, we were eating dinner and he opened up the, our sliding glass door upstairs, went out on the deck and just dropped his head into his arms and, and started crying uncontrollably. And I thought to myself, why? A year later, yeah. a year later, this, now he's hitting the ground at Mach 2. He started having problems. He was drinking. He was taking drugs. And I thought, how come a year later? You know, and I thought, I, I thought maybe we were starting to get a handle on this stuff. And so we got him into a program and uh, he was in there for a while. And so 
these programs were helpful because they it brought the whole family unit in, in uh, these programs maybe one time a week. And so they helped not only the child that was in this program, but the mother and father also, because they realized that we were dealing, we were being an island unto ourselves also. Oh, yeah. All trying the time. to deal with all this crap that's going on. And uh, it's now a very dysfunctional time. Uh -huh. And so we work our way through it. And uh, in order to, we, we start to make some real good progress. And as time goes on, we started working a little bit closer together and then closer together. And then we started talking about it more as a family. And my feeling, uh, $75,000 worth of advice is, you know, if you have a problem, the most important thing that you could do as a mother, a father, or a child is to sit down and talk about it because society in the past has taught us in the past is to retreat and hide and keep it all inside. And therefore, you don't have a pressure valve. Until you go nuclear. I have a sister and ex-sister-in-law. This happened many years ago, but um, she died randomly at like three years old. Her uh, her daughter did. And we did what you talked about. We did what uh, pretty much any red-blooded American inhabitant of the planet would do. We did nothing. We didn't talk about it. Then one day I was over there visiting her, and I noticed there was a Dear Abby type uh, thing on her uh on her fridge and and it was basically you know why don't people talk about it she she existed she was real why don't people talk about it so i thought all right i'll talk about it so i went over and mentioned kimmy's name uh to this uh lady and a few seconds later she starts crying and then, of course, my wife waits uh, at the time, waits a couple minutes and says, why did you do that to her? You know, why would you, why would you bring that up? Make her cry. You made her cry. You're, you're evil. And I think that's the, the risk we, we feel is, you know, we don't want to bring it up because we don't want somebody to cry because we don't want to accept that there's anything hard. So as a result, we're, we're all trash compactors. How do you how do you how did you deal with that in your in your family? Well, you know, uh, personally, I, uh, I I'll, I'll start off with my wife back then. Um, she went to beauty school, mm -hmm. and I knew that that was extremely important for her to do because, um, if we really sit down and think about it, the worst thing that you can have take place in your mind at this period of time is doing nothing is just an idle mode. It's the most destructive thing that you can ever have because it gets to be a very dark place in your life. And so she went to beauty school. It kept her mind busy. And then she, she started cutting hair after that. And so in my opinion, I think it helped her out immensely. Myself, um, it go, I'll talk, a little bit more in detail because after two weeks of taking off after my daughter died, my first call, my first assignment that day was to go to a suicide 
up Squaw Peak Trail, up one of our tall mountains here in, okay. in Utah County. And uh, there was a guy that uh, had committed suicide, and there were a couple other deputies up there. And, and I remember it was starting to rain that day. And I asked one of them, I says, hey, grab a piece of plastic, let's put it over him. And one of the guys says, well, you know, he, he's, he's, he's dead, he's passed away. And I says, no, you don't understand. This is somebody's father. This is someone's uncle. This is somebody's brother. And we have to have respect for them. And so we, I pulled a piece of plastic over him. And I remember after leaving the mountain that day, I went straight down the cemetery to visit with my daughter. And I, I remember just doing nothing but crying the whole rest of the evening. You know, finally pulled myself together and and I and I thought, you know, there's some more things that I, I should be able to do. So I, I started writing a book. It was called Suicide, the Atomic Bomb. And basically what it was about is that if you, if, if you were to look at consent, uh, the pictures of Hiroshima, when they drop the, the bomb on Hiroshima, you could see concentric circles that actually get bigger and bigger as you look out. Well, there were many people that were vaporized instantly. But if you go out a little bit further, let's say a mile, two miles, three miles, you know, some of those people died within weeks, some of them within years, some of them within several years. My son, you know, it didn't hit him, it hit him, but it didn't hit him real hard till a year later. And that's the reason I started writing this book. I think a lot of it was to help myself in writing down some of the things that I observed, some dynamics that were taking place in my family. And then as time went on, I thought there's something else I can do. I have to be able to protect other kids. Uh, some may say that I went overboard. Today I have like four or five safes, big safes. Uh, and so I decided to go ahead and create what I thought was the world's safest, which I still believe is the safest gun lock in the world today. And I named it after my daughter. It's, it's, her name was Talia. And so I called him T-Lock. So T-Lock. Uh -huh. And it has an alarm system on it. Uh, you can't break into it. If you break into it, you're going to destroy your gun. And so that was that was. That was a little bit or a part of healing for me is to put this program together. And what was really interesting is I was putting this program together. I was creating a website. My, actually, my youngest daughter was creating the website. So everything that we were doing on this gun lock business was all family. Uh -huh. and, and the reason being is because I wanted involvement from every family member so that we could all feel like we're contributing to this. So one day the family left and I'm writing a little blurb on, on the website and I was having such a hard time. And all of a sudden, it, I, you know, all I can tell you is this, as I was putting together a paragraph or two, my daughter was standing next to me. I finished that within four minutes and it was everything that I felt and that she wanted me to print. And uh, so I felt that that point she was happy in what I was putting together. How much time was it from the moment that she committed suicide until the first moment that you felt her? Well, 
it's a little story. Uh, my daughter was having a struggle, and uh, she was seeing a professor at uh, UVU. Uh-huh. At that time, it was UVU uh, College in, in Orem, uh, the university. And uh, this professor was helping her on the side. And after my daughter passed away, uh, he came over to me and he says, hey, I want you to read. I need you to read this. And I, I, I'm at the cemetery and we're sitting there. We're waiting, you know, uh, for a, a few talks and that. And, uh, and then, you know, we would all leave. But it, the whole family was there. And, but he walked up and he says, I need you to read this now. And I didn't want to read it right then. I just, uh, we were just in too much pain. And so about a week later, I grabbed all these envelopes, condolences, and, and I read the one he wrote. And uh, he told me that she had visited him, that she came to talk to him and was very apologetic and wishes that she, she could have talked to us, but we were in so much grief. At that point, I got to be honest with you. I feel like for the first time in my life, I felt there was a connection with the other side of this life. The first time. First time. I can echo everything you've you've said. Um, I have any number of experiences like that myself. When my uh, wife's dad died, um, he came to me just as I was waking up. He he spent thirteen days dying slowly. That was that was painful. You know, he was in a coma, and we we would swab his mouth with water so he didn't get scabs. Oh, and it would still get scabs and bleed, and you know, he he died that slowly. He, but anyway, so I was uh, more than tired of uh, of living at his house with not much to do, but just being there to support whoever. So he passed, and uh, I, I think maybe the next morning, I, I went home to my own bed. You know, I, I like my bed. Yeah. It's much better than sleeping on the whatever, you know, the couch mm-hmm. that, was, that was bought in 1982. Um, so I just, at the moment I walked, I woke up, uh, I got a notice from him. He says, hey, you're the fourth or fifth person I've tried to talk to, but I'm good. If I would have known it was this good, I would have I would have allowed myself to die sooner. So I passed that message message along to them too. Yeah, they were they were big time into the um process of grieving, you know, dad's dead. And I can only imagine the list of who he might have gone to would have been his wife, of course. Uh, my wife Julie, maybe his sisters. He had he had or her, she had a sister and a brother, um, but they were all too busy into their own stuff to be open to him paying a visit. So I've you know I've been there and done that with you. You're you're not telling fairy tales. Yeah. No, I really I, I really truly believe in the afterlife. There's there's no question more more so since. Uh, my daughter had spoken with him, and he was a very reputable professor at the at the university there. Uh-huh. And uh, so, you know, uh, time time had gone by. Um, our family starting to do fairly fairly good, and um, you know, I my brother passed away. He was the only 
I didn't have any sisters or other brothers. My brother passed away, and then my, my daughter, my oldest daughter, like I said, she passed away in 1998. And, and then my brother's niece come to live with me in 2004. And uh, there was one thing I was definitely going to make sure is that nothing was going to happen to her. Right. And uh, when she come to live with me, she had uh, gotten addicted to heroin before she came to live with me. And so I was doing everything I could to make sure that I was going to save her and that nothing would happen to her. Uh, and, and do it for my brother, do it for myself, do it for my family, do it for her. Uh-huh. And, uh, and I felt like I was doing real good. I set boundaries and she was, she was following him. She, she was doing quite good. And then one day she just didn't show up to home. And I got a call from the sheriff uh, the next day, and he asked to meet at my house. And uh, oh, man. she, uh, I think she was still having a problem with heroin, her and her boyfriend. And they were on their way to Wendover and flipped a truck, and it rolled over on her about seven times. So oh. that was real difficult because I had to go talk to her mother about that. And, and you know, it's, it's, you know, life is interesting. I, 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 I will have to be honest with you. With the hardships of life, there are blessings that come along with it also. There's opportunities that come along with it. I, you know, at those times, I didn't think so. My best friend, when I was working in narcotics, name was Sean Adamson. We were working meth labs, and we were the very first officers in the state of Utah to start working meth labs, but we did it with no protective equipment. Right. So uh, most of the friends that I worked with have already passed away, and they're not that old. And uh, this particular friend, a best friend, he uh, he started having real bad migraines. And uh, later, it ended up having seizures and a short time later passed away. And, and then I ended up getting a, a divorce in, in the uh, earlier part of this year in 2022. And, you know, I start thinking, it's really having a, a real difficult time. I was trying to make our marriage work the last two years. And... Uh, I just went into a very, very dark, dark space, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And going dark is a real good thing for marriage. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, it, uh, I went into a very dark space and, uh, contemplated taking my life at that point. And, uh, you know, and I just, uh, I don't know. I, uh, I know a lot of people say it's a very selfish thing to do, and uh, I got to a point where I pulled out my duty gun and I put placed it up the side of my face, side of my temple, and uh, I thought, you know, everybody's passed away, my family, and pretty much except for my kids, and, and uh, I just felt like I was just in a very, very dark, dark tunnel. And uh, I just didn't want to have any more pain anymore. And I, uh, my daughter at that point, <laughs> I'm trying to think the best way to put it. She flashed right, right in front of my face, and uh, 
I dropped my gun. And uh, I think she was help, helping to teach me that this is not the right way to go. And uh, I, uh, I had a moment for a second. I want to say that I'm embarrassed. I want to say this is terrible. But it's just, uh, it was a point in my life that I was, I couldn't dig myself out. Mm-hmm. I just couldn't dig myself out until my daughter come to visit me. What did she do for you? What was the message that you, you gained from her? It's probably more of a comforting, comforting feeling inside that if I do this, uh, she's going to be talking to me about it, <laughs> that my kids are not going to forgive me. Uh, my family's not going to forgive me. And uh, I felt like I could see a little bit of light through that tunnel. And I just kept pushing my way to try to get there. And and I, I thought, well, I've developed this gun lock. And this will be for naught. This will be for nothing. Here, the inventor of this gun lock commits suicide, too. And so that's, I've never really said anything to anybody about this before, but I was, I was in a dark place and my son knew I was in a very dark place and he came and picked me up shortly after that. And uh, he took me for a drive up American Fort Canyon up by a place called Dutchman Flats. Mm-hmm. And if you continue there, you'll go into a ski resort, but it's, it's a super, super rough road. And he had a Jeep. And I couldn't believe he ever took that road. And and to this day, I don't know how we got there. But I may have said five words the whole time. Uh But, you know, for my son to recognize that there was something wrong. This is the same one that went out to the patio and cried a year later. Yeah. He recognized that there was something wrong. And he came and picked me up. I didn't say more than five words to him for the four hours or five hours that we were together. But to this day, I reflect back on my daughter, reflect back on my son. And all I can say is I thank God for my kids and for my family. Because they both saved you. They saved me. Dennis, thank you. Thank you. Hey, thank you for listening to this Manalizing podcast. I appreciate it. You know, I don't go hunting for men with big stories and big issues to deal with. I find that pretty much any man that I talk to, he's going to have a story. If you're inspired by what you hear, here's my invitation. Join us. Join Manalizing. Manalizing Manalizing.com. Lift and be lifted. Help other men and allow other men to help you. Let's do this together. We look forward to meeting you. Manalizing.com.